Let's just pray, shall we? Father, we just thank you for your presence, your grace amongst us. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you. And Lord, this morning, as in every time we open your word, we're looking at matters too weighty, really, for us. How can we describe you? How can we fully comprehend or understand you? We can only work within the revelation you've made. And that revelation is so glorious, you leave us humbled and worshipful of you. But this morning, Lord, I want to begin this series, and I want to pray that you would bless us. That you would touch our lives, Lord, for this whole subject matter will challenge us in areas that perhaps we're not used to being challenged. And I pray that that would be for our good and our strengthening and our edification, that we may live more and more for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well this series is not entitled Death for Seven Weeks. (laughs) It's actually entitled The Journey Home. And what we're going to do for once a month for the next seven months is I'm going to touch on lots of different subjects that will obviously incorporate death, but they will incorporate heaven, what's heaven like, what's hell like. We're going to look at the whole subject of eternal rewards. We're going to touch on the subjects of what happens to the unborn child that is never born and what happens to the very young child that never grows up who may pass away. We're going to look at Judgment Day. What is Judgment Day? We're going to look at Jesus' return. What actually happens? (laughs) And if you think I know the answer to all of those, then bless you for thinking so highly of me, but I don't. I'm going to present as much as I believe the Bible tells us and hopefully inspire you to work some things out for yourself. But also in the process to make sure we live every day for the glory of God as though it could be our last. And never for one second of our earthly life fear death. There's nothing to fear. So let's begin our Journey Home series then with this first subject, what happens when we die. Billy Graham, famous evangelist, was travelling through a town one day Uh, as he went to speak at one of his many crusades, he stopped as he saw a little boy on the side and he said to him, do you know the way to the post office? And the little boy explained, as you go down there and you turn left, etc. And then Billy Graham, typically in his passion to see people come and hear the good news of Jesus, said to the little boy, if you come tonight and hear what I have to say, you can find the way to heaven. And the little boy said, nah. He said, you don't even know the way to the post office. (laughs) You see, the point is this. We know where we hope to spend eternity. But do we actually know how we're going to get there and what happens when we do? It's the most relevant topic of all. For it is the ultimate statistic that one in one of us will eventually die unless Jesus returns, but that's week six, that's part six, you'll have to wait for that one. Now many details are not given to us in the Bible. Typically, that is so, we can learn to trust God. And many details are apparently 
or can apparently offer a different sequence of events. We'll come to that when we look at amillennium and premillennium and postmillennium. I'll throw the big words out now so I can find out what they mean in time when we get there. But dear friends, one thing is certain. Jesus will return. And he will judge every human being. And there will be a heaven and a hell. And Jesus had a lot to say about the dangers of living without an eye on our eternity. There are over 300 references in the New Testament to his return and the events that surround it. Jesus spoke about hoarding money away as foolishness, putting it away in bonds so our security is actually in our bank balance so we check the figures and say, oh, I'm secure because I've got this money. When all the time we're saying to God, I don't trust you. I want to hoard Jesus talked about talents being unused and when he returns, how indifferent we can be to actually not bother to use the things he's given us for his glory. And if you remember, he spoke to the virgins or he told the story of the virgins who ran out of oil for the wedding feast because they were unprepared. They weren't even thinking it may happen soon. The point is a naive or an indifferent attitude to what happens when we die, can at the best be foolishness, but dear friends, at the worst, it can lead us to hell. And so we need to live always with our eternity in focus. And the return of Jesus was always in the early church's minds when you read through Acts particularly. Two Thessalonians, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians because they were so adamant Jesus was coming back so urgently, they stopped work. They basically got the sun loungers out and sat in the back garden, a bit like Dio does at the weekend, and just basked, saying, looking into the sky, any time now. Paul, Paul had to rewrite and say, for goodness sake, you lazy Herberts, get up. Apologies to anyone who's called Herbert. The reality of their death, again, was always on their mind because they lived in persecution. Every Sunday, they would turn up, or if they met on Sundays, but that's another conversation. Every time they met, if somebody wasn't there, it wasn't they must be sick. It could be they'd been fed to the lions. So they always lived with their death in their minds. Our concern and our challenge is, I wonder, is maybe we have become a little too earthbound. We had a dear friend in Taunton, a lovely Christian man, but he said if Jesus returned today, it would be get in the way of his life. Now I wanted to very graciously and spiritually slap him. Because that is so awful to hear a Christian say that. You can see he's too earthbound. And so I believe by studying this subject together... It's going to challenge us in four key areas of our life, as you'll see on the PowerPoint. For example, if we're living with our death and our eternity at the forefront of our mind, we live as though this could be my last day. Therefore, if this could be my last day, and it could be, who am I living for? Who am I living to please? When I'm making my decisions in life, Who am I making them in light of? Who do I obey? What on earth have I got to fear if this could be my last day? 
Isaac Watts, great hymn writer, said this, I lie down in comfort at night, not being anxious if I wake in this world or another. Is that you? Next time you go to bed anxious and your mind's racing, just remember what Isaac said. He's not anxious whether he awakes in this world or another. Secondly, understanding and living as though each day is our last affects our missional perspective. The horrors of hell and the joys of heaven are real. And the more I understand, the less indifferent I will be to the plight of my non-Christian friends, of those who don't know Jesus personally. Thirdly, having a better understanding of our journey home, of living as though today could be our last, of where we're going to heaven, it affects how we live in sickness and suffering. You see, an eternal perspective helps us see sickness and suffering in its right balance. You see, the reality is I'm passing through this life. This is not the end game. This is simply a step towards. And what time I have and have left, I want to live it for God's glory. I spoke at a church in Spain a couple of years ago and I spoke on Psalm 23 about through the valley of death, you know, Jesus is always with us. And this guy came up to me afterwards and he was quite angry. He was saying to me, I've got a friend who's been told he's only got months left to live. What do I say to him about God caring for him? You see, his perspective was totally wrong. I said to him, you go to your friend and you tell your friend, whatever days he's got left, he lives it to the glory of God. May he be the most gracious patient. May he be the most humble person in the bed. May he be the most encouraging to all those who serve him. May he pray as much as he can. But he has an opportunity that God has put him in to live his life to the glory of God. We can grieve, but we don't grieve without hope. We can suffer, but we don't suffer without joy. D.L. Moody said, someday you will hear I have died. Don't you believe it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. That's the kind of perspective we live with. And then fourthly, having an eternal perspective to our daily thoughts affects us in our worship. Death has no sting. I don't fear it. And as I see what awaits me, and as heaven is opened up to my mind and heart, I realise who it is that's enabled me to get there and what he's done to enable me to get there and what it's cost me. Nothing. Tell me, what reason have we got not to worship him as we heard this morning, pouring the extravagant oil on his feet when we live with an eternal perspective? C.T. Studd said this, be sure to celebrate my funeral scripturally and send hallelujahs round. It's the better day than my wedding day. Tempted to make comment there, but I won't. But isn't that how we should live? Isn't that how we do live? If we have our eternal perspective, 
in our mind at all times. But we must come to this subject, the journey home, in humility. For God created the universe, the universe, <laughs> not plural, and all humans in his image. He and he alone is sovereign and he and he alone is our judge and our saviour and he determines the rules and the consequences. So when we come to doctrines that we may find hard to understand or comprehend, as I suspect we will, we must remember that there is no greater example of love and grace than what God displayed through giving us Jesus Christ as our sacrifice. That there is no fairer dispensation of justice than his. And there is no authority higher than his word and no flaw in his decisions. We must remember who it is who set these boundaries. So my prayer is that we're encouraged to see that God is greater and bigger and more deserving of our obedience than ever before. That we're motivated to live for his glory, humbled by his mercy, and excited that one day we will see him face to face. So much so that that affects the way I live today, in my worship, in my obedience, in my passion to see others come to Jesus. Let David Pawson have the last word to this introduction. He he writes, why are we told so much about the second coming? We know more about it than any other future event predicted in scripture. There must be a reason. On the one hand, why are we not told more? Tantalizing hints leave us full of unanswered questions. There is so much we'd like to know, but don't. There must be one explanation to cover both our knowledge and our ignorance. Some purpose for which we now know all we need to know. But it's neither too little nor too much. The purpose is, in, is practical. In a word, it is to be ready for his return. Revelation about the future is given to affect the present, not to satisfy mental curiosity, but to stimulate moral consistency. Not for information, but for incentive. We live by hope. That is why it springs eternal in the human breast. The future influences the present in all of us. What we believe will happen in the future profoundly affects how we behave now. In a random year, I chose 2010, 493,000 people died in the UK. Conservatively, we could guess that would be 400,000 people were destined for hell. And that's an optimistic figure of Christians. It's sobering. One in one people die. So it's no surprise that many people and religions have developed their own theories of what actually happens. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that the body and the spirit are annihilated for those who are not Jehovah's Witnesses. They do not believe in a hell, so there is no punishment. And only Jehovah's Witnesses live on a renewed earth, 
144,000 of them, special ones, who they never name and don't know if it's them, go elsewhere. Mormons believe that resurrection is, all, is for all. And it's determined by your life on earth. People enter into a spirit world of death and are resurrected to paradise either by dying as a Mormon or having others perform ordinances on earth for them, i.e. being baptised for the dead. Hell is for ex-Mormons or serious sinners. Never quite define what the serious sinners mean. But even they can get out of hell through these ordinances. Islam believes that your life is weighed, your good deeds versus your bad deeds. All non-Muslims will go to hell. Warriors fighting God's cause are immediately sent to be with God with fringe benefits. All enemies of Islam will go to hell. Roman Catholics believe in purgatory. Purgatory is a place in between earth and heaven where your soul is purged to prepare you for heaven. Therefore, the actions of the living can determine their ultimate fate. Prayers for the dead help, as do the granting of indulgences. I'm not so sure if that's so common nowadays. But purgatory, you had to pay a priest to pray for your loved one to get them through into heaven. Which quite conveniently, in that era, brought in a lot of money. Then there is existentialism. Existentialism believes there's nothing after death. There's no consequence to life. Life has no purpose. Live as you please. When you die, that's it. Total annihilation. And most non-religious people have a concept that if there's a God and my life is to be judged, then I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as her. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't, etc., etc. My point is this. Truth, by definition, is exclusive. Therefore, not every one of these religions can be right. Only one can be right. And many people try and dismiss it. They say, oh, roll on death, let's have a good sleep. You see signs in bars saying if there's no fishing in heaven, I'm not going. People say, rest in peace. It's going to be anything but resting in peace. And people say, Live for today. This is why I'm passionate that we need to know what the Bible instructs us about what will happen when we die and what happens thereafter. Though people are sincere in their beliefs, it does not make them right. And without God's word as our guide, the alternative is that we become our own judge and jury conveniently resulting in us passing our own test. So what happens when we die? What does the Bible say about death? Let's give an overview. 
The Bible begins with God's glorious creation. There's no sin, no suffering and no death in the Garden of Eden. However, very soon Adam and Eve bring sin into God's perfect creation. And so we read just a couple of chapters later that somebody died and somebody died and somebody died and so on and so on. And suddenly death becomes a normal passage in scripture. Death came to God's perfect creation. At the end of the Bible, God restores the damage done through sin. By creating a new heaven and a new earth. A place where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin and no more death. However, between those two occasions, there is evil, there is suffering and there is death. D.A. Carson says evil is the primary cause of suffering. Rebellion is the root of pain and sin is the source of death. If there had been no sin in the Garden of Eden, there would have been no death. But the Bible tells us in Hebrews 9 that all people are destined to die once and after that face judgment. God has put limits on his creation. And death reminds us that we are not gods. We're just mortal. Death is not something that just happens, but it happens because I am a sinner. I have caused death. Our rebellion against God's rule in our lives means that we face judgment. And speaking of all humanity... We will die and all face the one and only true God. And this is the same for all persons, regardless of their religion or their beliefs. However, God does not look upon our bodily death with indifference. I remember I first heard this verse when my father was passing away with cancer. And it meant a lot to him at the time. He said, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Remember the story of Lazarus. It always puzzled me. Why did Jesus weep when he knew he was going to raise him from the dead a few minutes later? Because he's not indifferent to our death. The end of our time on earth is not apart from God's attentiveness. We had the privilege years ago, Laurie and I, in Dorchester, when a dear, wonderful, holy couple, godly couple, precious people, he, he was, no, she was passing away. And when we, Laurie was sitting on the end of a bed and she was, bless her, she was quite frail at the time. She didn't have long left. And she says to Laurie, she says, can you see him? And Laurie's like, obviously not me. She's looking, who? And this lady's getting annoyed. Can't you see him? Who? Jesus. This lady in her last hours, literally, was getting annoyed with Laurie because she couldn't see Jesus who was standing at the end of her bed waiting for her. Precious. In the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Of most importance though, is the victory that Jesus Christ has had over death for us. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Jesus' death and resurrection has removed the punishment for our sin. For those who have made him their Lord and Saviour, their punishment was taken by him when he died as the sinless one. There's that song that always gets me. I won't sing it. (laughs) I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. You will never know the punishment of God, the wrath of God for your sin because of what Jesus took on the cross for you. If you have made him your personal Lord and Saviour. So the Bible often uses the phrase fall asleep to describe Christians who die. Need to be clear, this is not describing a state of sleep, but it's to differentiate it from being death, being the final moment, okay? So it's not you go to sleep, it's just a phrase to say, Death is not the final moment. In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul's addressing the church at Corinth about communion, those who take it in an unworthy manner, and I won't go on to that today, but those who take it in an unworthy manner, he goes on to say, and some of you have fallen asleep. That doesn't mean it was so boring they nodded off. It meant actually they've left this earth. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes about Jesus' return and he says, those who have fallen asleep, come with him. And Stephen in Acts 7, when he's been stoned, Luke, who writes it, describes Stephen as falling asleep. When the Bible speaks of death, it is referring to the separation of our body from our soul or spirit. Now, I put the two together, soul and spirit I put together. I know some people like to separate them, but I'm a simple guy. I'm going to keep them together. So when the Bible speaks of death, it's referring of the separation of our physical body from our soul or spirit, either by decay of old age or it's been destroyed suddenly or prematurely through sickness. Listen to what Paul says. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, (coughs) that's this body, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Dear friends, as you get older, you will understand that verse more. How you will groan more and more as your body gets older and you begin to look forward to more and more your heavenly body. He goes on, because when we are clothed, we'll not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, this body, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Talking about our eternal body, that gorgeous, perfect body that will never grow old, never fade, never get sick. So that what is mortal may be swallowed, swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Do you know, how do I know I'm a Christian? 
because there's something that God has placed in me that guarantees to me that I'm destined for an eternity with him. No one's brainwashed me. No one's fed me stuff to think that. The Spirit has come into my heart and assures me there is something ahead in eternity for me. Now, the Bible does not speak of annihilation in the sense of when you die, that's it, everything finishes. In Genesis 1.27, we read that God made us in his image. God is spirit. So when God makes us in his image, you're not all made to look like God. That would be perplexing, wouldn't it? Because we all look different. He's talking about his spirit, his character, love and joy and peace and happiness, kindness, sacrifice. This is the image of God that we're made into. This body wears out and eventually is destroyed, but the spirit within it is eternal. Either Christian or non-Christian, there is no end to me being me. Now that may disappoint some of you, because there there is an end to the bad bits of me being me. But what fundamentally makes me me is me for eternity. Isn't that great? Laurie's so thrilled. She can't. (laughs) But you can't destroy the spirit for that's created in God's image. And it is this spirit in me that is born what the Bible calls as a dead to God. We're not born Christians. That's why Jesus talks in John 3 that we need to be born again. There needs to be something that happens to awaken our spirit to God. The spirit lives. The body decays. So seriously, funeral, cremation, burial, really doesn't matter. Although cremation is a lot cheaper. Now, wonderfully, there is a, I'm so practical, there is a uniqueness to being a Christian at our death. And the non-Christian doesn't get this part. For the non-Christian, either life has no purpose, what's it all about, so they don't care about any eternity or accountability, or their eternity will seem dependent on their efforts. Like I said, Hindus and reincarnation. Some people believe you're reincarnated to the next life dependent on how you behaved in the last life. The problem with that is the population keeps increasing, so I'm not sure where these people have come from. But hey, I'm sure they can explain it. Their life is weighed, and as long as they reach 51%, it's okay. But this is not what our Bible teaches us. This is not the Christian view at all. Our uniqueness to all other religions is that our eternity is not determined by (coughs) our good or bad efforts. Our eternity is determined on the work and sacrifice of Jesus Christ and whether we have placed our faith in him to make him our Lord and Saviour. It's not about you. It's all about him. All you did was put faith in him. And even that may not have been. Oh no, let's not go there. 
All you've done is put faith in him. He did it all. Have you been bad? Yes, that's why you need a saviour. Put faith in the saviour, guess what? You're clothed in his righteousness. You're on your way to heaven. Jesus says these sobering words in Matthew 7. Incidentally, I'm not sure the other ones will be as long as this one. But I just wanted to get the introduction done. In in Matthew 7, Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's one of those sobering passages that basically says there are people going around in this world today and people that we meet and maybe if we're a normal church, people in our congregation that think that somehow when they die and they stand before Jesus, he'll say, wow, look at all you've done. You gave 50 quid here. You were kind to your neighbor. You, were, you said sorry to that person. Wow. But no. Jesus is more likely to say, I'm sorry, I never knew you. Because we never had that relationship where you gave your life to follow me and made me your personal saviour. In Galatians 4, Paul writes that God sent the spirit of his son into the hearts. The spirit who calls out father. Again, this is another one of those litmus tests. How do I know I'm a Christian? Because something in my heart is crying out. I'm going to heaven. But also something else is crying out. I know God as father. That's intimate. I know him and therefore he knows me. Dear friends, do you know these two truths? Or are you living so afraid of death? Because the truth is, you don't know what's going to happen afterwards. Or you're trying to justify it by saying, well, I've been a good person, I've been better than them, and I don't do that. I don't want you to hear Jesus say, I never knew you. Then you need to make sure that he is your personal saviour and you're living in the intimacy of that relationship. And this, and this alone, is the only fact that determines our eternity. So let's look at what happens <coughs> when a Christian, as I've defined a Christian, dies or, as the Bible says, falls asleep. In Luke 23, when Jesus was being crucified, there was a criminal next to him who basically turned and put faith in him, <coughs> recognised that Jesus was sinless, recognised that Jesus didn't deserve And asked him to remember him. And Jesus says to him, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Now look, next time you're beating yourself up about not doing good things and whether you're going to get to heaven and all that silly, silly thought process, remember this guy. This guy was nailed to a cross. What was he going to ever do that was good? He had literally a couple of hours. And yet Jesus promises him, this day... You'll be with me in paradise. There's no time to do any good deeds. There's no time to do a church membership course. 
No time even to get baptised. But he was assured, this day you'll be with me. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul writes, we're confident and would prefer to be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. The passage gives this impression that being away from the body and being home with the Lord is like, it's even that took a millisecond, it's not even that. There's no break in the time between the body finishes and we're with the Lord. Philippians 1, he says, I'm torn, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Do I want to live long? Oh, I don't don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. Uh, No. I know that whatever God has determined for me, it's better by far when I'm with him. 1 Thessalonians 4, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him. Where do we go? We're with him. So when that mighty moment comes and the trumpet sounds and the heavens open up and the angels come, guess what? My mum and dad will be there. And if I'm still here, I suspect I'm not, but if I am, I'll say, Mom, Dad. If I'm with them, I would have already said that, but then I'm getting on to something else a bit later where we recognise each other in heaven. So that's week 17. <laughs> Revelation 5.9 describes the souls of the martyrs around the throne crying out to God. How long before you judge the earth? Now, you've got to be careful with your interpretation of Revelation, whether it's literal or symbolic. But I think it's reasonable to assume the picture that we're getting here from John is that there's a consciousness of those who have gone to be with the Lord. And this implies there's a consciousness of what's going on down on earth. Now, we can't go too far on that. Is my dad watching over me every day? I sincerely hope not. But there's a consciousness of what's going on for those who are with the Lord. When our body gives up, we are instantly in the presence of Jesus, not even a blink. That is too slow. Because between whilst that's happening, where was I? Do you see? We can't comprehend it because we're so governed by time. The second our bodies give up, We are not restrained by time anymore. You explain eternity to me. How long is it? We all measure it, don't we? Well, it's a million. It's like my mum used to say. It's like a bird who goes to a stone that's a million miles by a million miles and goes once a million years and sharpens its beak and eternity is when the stone's worn down. Good effort, mum. But it was totally wrong because one day the stone will wear down. Eternity has no end. Our spirit is with Jesus when our body gives up. All it is, it's a temporary separation between our spirit and the body. We're with Jesus in his presence and we await that body, the new one. This is why Paul could say in Romans 8, death cannot separate us from his love. When I pass through, when I move on, or as the Salvation Army used to say, promoted to glory, do you know, I'm going to be in his prayer, I'm going to know him in a different way. I'm going to be so overwhelmed. I'm going to be so joyful. But I'll also know that even in that moment, see I'm measuring it by time again, even then, there's more to come. For when he returns and gives me my new body, and judges me 
not for wrath. When he judges me and takes me to a new heaven and a new earth, which might be part five, I can't remember. This place we go to between on earth in our fleshy body to eternal body in heaven and the new earth is sometimes referred to as the intermediate state or paradise or indeed present heaven or second heaven or third heaven as I'll read you in a minute. It's where we wait for the resurrection when we're united with our imperishable bodies. Paul describes this paradise as far better than being on earth. It's not our final destination nor our final state. Though it's wonderful, there's something better, even than this, to come. And this heaven, let's call it heaven for now, or this paradise, exists now. So yes, I can confidently say, having watched my mum lie in bed, unable to move or talk for five years and see my dad kill himself caring for her every day of his life. I can confidently say they're in the presence of Jesus, free of all suffering and pain, reveling in his presence, awaiting the day to be reunited with their favourite son. <laughs> I won't tell you who that is. <laughs> There's a spiritual dimension we can't see at present. Remember when Stephen was stoned? He cried out. And he said, I see heaven and earth, sorry, I see the heavens open. And Jesus stood at the right hand. He's looking into this intermediate state, this paradise. So, as I draw this to a close... Though the specifics are going to be patchy, and though Alison on the drive in every morning is asking me questions, and I'm thinking this is going to be three-year series if I attempt to answer all of these, and most of them the answer is, I really don't know. Though some specifics will be patchy, we can be certain of this. Death holds no fear to those who know Jesus personally. It's not an end nor is it a void for the Christian. <clears throat> Death, when our earthly body gives up, is our reunion with Jesus Christ and all loved ones and those many billions we don't even know who have gone before, who also loved and knew Jesus Christ. And we will reign there with him and live and receive a new experience of God that I can't, words can't describe this. But we will also know there is more to come. There is a new body to receive, to get rid of this aching, aging one. There is a new heaven and a new earth. Do you know sometimes when you go out and you look at a vista and you say, wow. I mean, Laurie's always doing this. She's, she's, we're walking down, suddenly she stops and starts worshipping God because of a vista and I'm thinking I, I don't get it but anyway we're all gifted differently dear friends you are looking at a corrupted corroded earth you have no idea what this new heaven and earth will look like we haven't seen anything yet we get a glimpse 
And death takes us through into this new paradise whilst we await Jesus' return and the new heaven and new earth. And understand this if you want something to dwell on over the next few weeks. The minute our body dies and our spirit goes to be with Jesus, time stops for us. We're not governed by time. So what's that like? It's like it could be like that and suddenly Jesus is returning. But earth has gone on another thousand years for all we know. It's not like we're hanging around because time will not restrain us. We won't think, oh, flipping it, Jesus. It's, I've been here a month now, isn't it time? You came back so I could get this new body. It won't be like that. You'll be in a glorious place. Let's leave some final words to Paul. The Apostle Paul, that is. In 2 Corinthians 12, he says this. I must go on boasting. He's, he's having an argument with the Corinthians and he's trying to... Yeah, let's not go there. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. He's really speaking about himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it is in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. There was a moment Jesus took him to have a glimpse into paradise and said to him, you must not tell them what you've seen. Why? Guys, we couldn't have understood it. Words could not have described it. But wow, that awaits everyone who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. These inexpressible things, there'll be a moment when you'll see them. The question is, do you know him now as your Lord and Saviour? I'm going to stop at this point. Next month, we're going to look at what happens to the non-Christian when the unbeliever dies. And also, I'm going to talk to you about how do we prepare for our death as well. And then later on, as I say, there'll be other topics we'll, we'll touch on. Let's just pray. But in prayer, I want to ask you guys, are you sure you know Jesus Christ personally? In the depths of your spirit, are you absolutely sure you're going to heaven? Your eternity is secure. Are you absolutely sure that you cry out to God as Father? Because the Holy Spirit has come and done a work in you. But also I'm going to pray, if you're someone who has this fear of death, I'm not saying we're silly about these things, of course not. But I've come across many friends over the years who just have this fear of death. Uh, there's a lady years ago who got sick with cancer. I was uh, she was in our church. She got caught up into this false teaching. Uh, I, I don't do it service, but it's called Name It and Claim It. So basically, she would claim Jesus' healing as though she had a right to healing, which basically comes from a foundation that somehow we want to cling onto earth. Somehow... You know, I have a right to live, live as long as I can on earth. But actually, God's already predestined the day. 
you're going to go with him. But anyway, I'm not saying we don't pray for the sick at all. But this lady was so caught up in it. She refused to see me because she knew that I'd say to her, look, you've got to get ready to die. Pray for your healing, of course, but you've got to get ready to die. So she saw that I wouldn't claim the healing with her. She went totally the other way. It was horrible. The family hated the church because what they saw happen to her, her fear of death just consumed her. Do you struggle? Do you fear death? Let's just pray because you've no reason to. There's no sting. You actually go on to the most glorious place. Lord Jesus, we want to say to you, thank you. Thank you that we receive a precious eternity that we cannot comprehend or imagine, but we know because your Holy Spirit tells us it's for us. We're going there. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. And I pray that today and as we look at this subject of our journey home, you would change uh, work a change in our hearts about how we live, how we think, the decisions we make, our, our willingness to take risks with our non-Christian friends. Lord God, our faith in you, our worship. But Lord Jesus, right now, I want to renounce any fear of death in this room. I want to say to you, Holy Spirit, would you come? For that fear of death is a work of Satan. And it's sent to torment and trouble and causes harm. Lord, may truth drive that fear away. May the reality of you, you in our hearts assuring us of a glorious eternity drive any sense of fear of death from any of your children. In Jesus' name, amen.